Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. What a story our guest this week had. It's an incredible life story. Lots of useful takeaways for the rest of us as well. We'll get to Frank Ostaseski coming up. Uh, first, though, a few pieces of housekeeping. Uh, three, actually. The first is just to point out that uh, the meditation challenge that we've been running at 10% Happier is really well subscribed. Thank you guys for signing up. 30,000 people participating in the New Year's meditation challenge. Second is that there are some new meditations up on the 10% Happier app if you want to go check them out. One of them is about gratitude from 7A Selassie, former guest on this show. The other is called Is Worrying Useful by a guy named Dan Harris. And the third item of business is that we're making a little bit of a structural change to this show. As close listeners will recall, we did a big uh, survey, a listener survey a few months ago. Hundreds and hundreds of you took time to fill this survey out. And I think it took a not insignificant amount of time uh, for which I am profoundly and genuinely grateful. And one of the one of the uh, changes we're making, and we're going to make several as a consequence of all of this feedback, is that we're going to move the voicemails to the end of the show so we get right to our guest every week. And then at the end of the show, uh, we'll be taking questions from anybody who wants to call and leave us, leave us a question uh, on the voicemail number that we've set up, which is available in the show notes. And actually, another thing we're going to do, not starting this week, but starting reasonably soon, is is I won't be the only person answering the questions. We're actually going to bring in um, uh, meditation teachers to answer some of the questions and scientists and actual experts coming up. So we're improving based on your feedback, and I really appreciate it. So guest this week, the aforementioned Frank Ostaseski. This guy, as I said, has had a really interesting life, uh, characterized by some real pain when he was younger. Um, some You'll hear him discuss some of what it was like in his home when he was younger went on to lead a life of, as he describes it, drugs, sex, and rock and roll, and then discovered Buddhism, ended up over in Asia, and came home and started to, unlike many of us, we we meditate or we do a little bit of Buddhism or whatever, and it's for us, it's a private thing. This guy lived it out in a big way. Um, he was involved in caring for the homeless, serving on the front lines of the AIDS epidemic, lobbying Congress. And I think where he's made his most notable mark is that in 1987, he co-founded the Zen Hospice Project, which was the first Buddhist hospice in America. Um, as as listeners, some listeners may remember, I'm, I'm also a volunteer in a hospice. I'll be going later today, as a matter of fact, to visit my friend Ronnie. Um and I think it's incredibly meaningful work. I suspect I get a lot more out of it than as a volunteer than than the residents do. But it's it is incredibly important work. Not a lot of not enough people are doing it, and there's certainly no shortage of people who need it. So Frank is a pioneer in this space, and he's written a book just out in paperback called "The Five Invitations." Um, the Five Invitations, and he. It takes, he whittles down decades of experience sitting at the bedside with people on the cusp and what he's learned about, what he's learned in those moments that can be used for the rest of us to live happier, healthier lives right now, hopefully well before 
we die. And he's got these five really excellent lessons that he's learned as a consequence of all of this time spent at the bedside. So that hence the title, The Five Invitations. All right. Time for me to stop yammering and let's bring in Frank. Here we go. Great to meet you. Nice to be with you. So how did you get into meditation in the first place? Oh, you know, I think uh, I could give you all kinds of elevator speeches for that. But the truth is I was trying to avoid my own pain. And I tried everything, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and none of it worked. And I think at some juncture you turn toward your suffering. And that becomes the ground of compassion. And meditation was that craft that helped me to do that. What was going on in your life uh, at the time when you first made that decision? Oh, I came up in a family that had trouble. Um, two parents who were alcoholics. My mom died when I was a teenager, my dad a few years later. Wow, so really advanced yeah. alcoholism. Yeah. yeah where, and where was this? I, on Long Island, here. Long Island. Yeah, okay. yeah. So, you know, me and death, we were early companions. We got to know each other quite uh, at a young age in my life. That's got to be incredibly painful. So you're a teenager at this time? Yeah, I'm a teenager. And like all teenagers, um, I thought I was invulnerable, and most other people were too. So death came as a big shock. Yeah. And I, uh, w- w- is, that, is that at the time is that the time when you started getting into Buddhism and meditation, or was that much later? came a few years later. Um, I tried a lot of other things first. Um, and then... You know, a trip to Asia. I was one of those Dharma bums who was traveling around Asia in the 70s and um, late 60s and early 70s. So that's where I got my introduction. And then back here in the States with Joseph and, and Jack. Joseph and jo- Joseph Goldstein and Jack Cornfield. Yeah, yeah. Legendary old friends, teachers. good teachers and, and old friends, yeah. So, But I'm curious. Uh, so you grew up in this family that had, as you described, trouble. Mm. And then you found yourself in your 20s bumming around India and investigating Buddhism and meditation and things like that. What happened in between? What, why, did, why did that become your route as opposed to, I mean, there could have been much less wholesome decisions that would have changed the trajectory of your life. Absolutely. And in the case of my own family, my younger brother, for example, chose a different route. He chose alcohol and drugs, and he died at age 48. Wow. So... You know, I think sometimes, um, you know, it's hard to know exactly how our lives progress. Sometimes they go forward in a linear path, but sometimes they meander a bit, you know, like along a creek or a river. Mine meandered for a bit. and um, But eventually, because I had good mentors, uh, good examples, I turned toward uh, what most other people want to run away from. And you, you eventually got into hospice work. Was that an... an, an an outgrowth of your interest in Buddhism and meditation? I think so. You know, in, in Buddhism, you know, you know better than I that one of its central teachings is impermanence, that all things come and go, all things change. Yeah? And um, we like to think of ourselves as a solid thing going through a changing world, but actually we are also that change. Yeah? So one of the central practices is the reflection on death. So Buddhism was a big influence on that, but so was my own parents dying. Um, I worked in refugee camps in southern Mexico and Guatemala for a while where I saw a lot of horrible dying, you know, unredeemable suffering, actually. And when I came back to San Francisco, the AIDS epidemic was just beginning, and I was on the early front lines of the AIDS epidemic where none of us knew what we were doing. You know, we were doing our very best to care for our friends and, and, um, 
and those people who we were meeting for the first time sometimes in incredibly intimate conditions, but also very, very horrible conditions. Yeah. You, you, so you were working in refugee camps and then on the front lines of the AIDS crisis. Under what, what aegis? Or uh, just out there on your own? Or Well, I went to Mexico uh, with my um, son and his mother, ostensibly to have a holiday. But then we were in southern Mexico in Chiapas. And um, there there was hundreds, tens of thousands of refugees flooding in from Central America. And so we got involved. You know, we first we donated some money, then we donated some blood. Next thing you know, we were flying in small airplanes into jungle camps and working with people there. When I came back to San Francisco and the AIDS epidemic, you know, at the beginning, we didn't know what we were dealing with. You know, we forget that about the AIDS epidemic. And also, in those days, in the very early days, um, not so many people wanted to be around this experience. And so those of us who were willing to be there um, had an awful lot of access so I have absolutely no degrees. The only degree I have, only certificate I have is a Red Cross life-saving certificate, which I got at age 16, which I think is now expired. Yeah. <laughs> no college degree? No. No. I, the people who were really my teachers were folks who were dying. You know, um, These were folks coming from cultures I didn't know, speaking languages sometimes I couldn't understand. And um, you know, sometimes they had great faith that pulled them through their experience, and other times they'd sworn off religion years ago. Some of them blossomed and found deep acceptance and kindness, and other people turned toward the wall and withdrawal and hopelessness and depression, and they never turned back again. All of those people were my teachers, yeah. Did you, did you have a conventional career that you left to do this type of work? No, I used to produce rock and roll shows. Really? Yeah, yeah. I worked here and, and on the West Coast, yeah. So um, that was an effort to try and be somebody, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more about that phase in your life? Because I want to, I want to get into the, the the more germane topic for for <laughs> for this podcast. But I'm I can't restrain my curiosity. Yeah, I don't know that it that it's that important. But um, you know, I used to work in a school for disabled kids on Long Island, and every time I wanted to do something with those kids, they said, "Well, we don't have the money." So I said, "Well, if I get you the money, can we do it?" So. We still we started producing some rock shows to raise some money for those kids, and next thing you knew, I was swept up in that and became a producer and started working with all kinds of groups. You know, everybody who was everybody in the day: Jefferson Airplane and Sly and the Family Stone and all the you know enormous stars of those days. So this was in the sixties and seventies. Yeah, late uh, mid seventies. Yeah. Did, did this pre or post date your time in India? Um, predated it. Predated it. Okay, yeah. so. This After being in rock and roll, India looked really appealing. <laughs> <laughs> you must have seen a lot of people kind of become casualties of the party in that in that era. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, you know, it was beautiful in some ways, and it was really wild and fun. But also, there was a lot of destruction that was part of that that time as well. Yeah, it's interesting to me to just to to, to try to get a beat on what you know. You had siblings who didn't survive the experience of childhood. You had friends who didn't survive the experience of rock and roll. And yet something in you was, I don't know. Uh, so what happened with you the first time you sat down on a meditation cushion? Probably there was some resistance, yeah? <laughs> right? That would be an understatement. Okay. But then there was some junction which maybe it made sense to you. Yeah. Yes. Right. And what was that moment like? You know, it's what they were. They, they, it was the same moment. 
So for me, I, I, I had resistance. This is crazy. This is impossible. And yet I also saw, I had done enough reading before I had my first meditation session to know it was going to be hard. And I also saw, oh, this could be useful. Yeah. The seeing of how crazy you are and using that seeing and familiarity with the insanity to not be so owned by it. Oh, yeah. Okay, that makes sense. It right. doesn't seem easy, but it makes sense. Exactly. So that that idea that it makes sense, right? It's not just a cognitive sense either. You have this feeling like, oh, this fits, you know, this fits. And um, I don't have to believe in anything in order to know this practice of mindfulness, right? I have to trust my own direct experience of it. And that's what happened for me. When I came to practice, it made sense, you know, it fit. And it became the the um, lens through which I could begin to understand my life and also how to help other people through their life, through their troubles in their life. How did you even know mindfulness was a, th- uh, meditation was a thing? I mean, you were not, a, from what I can gather, you weren't obviously in that world. Who knows what brings us to a particular juncture in our life, you know? I mean, um, you see something, you know, faith is, faith comes from inspiration first, right? You, you read something or you, meet a teacher that you really admire or you have some chance encounter with someone, right? That's the first quality of faith. And then out of that comes your direct experience and we have some kind of abiding faith then. We have some capacity because we have some experience. We know we can can trust this practice. And eventually that comes to something much deeper, a much deeper quality of faith, yeah? Not blind faith, but real trust, yeah? Trust that not only in the practice and the craft of the practice, but trust in our humanity. Yeah. What drew you to the work that you ended up doing? You described a little bit of, and we're going to get much deeper into the, mm. the work you've done starting in Mexico, or at least from what I can gather, starting in Mexico and then continuing through the AIDS crisis. You said before, not, not a lot of people wanted access to this experience. Yeah. What about you wanted to be there for that? You know, Dan, I think that if we're really honest about this stuff, you know, Sometimes our own self-interest drives us, right? Sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> so, so for me, um, I actually, and I, I think this is true of a lot of people working in healthcare, I think there's an effort or a belief that if you're with someone else's pain that's worse than yours, yours might not seem so bad. Huh. Yeah. Now, that doesn't work. At some juncture, you've got to turn toward this experience and find out what it has to teach you. I was talking about this, moving towards suffering with a a retreat I was teaching in the Northwest. And this guy said to me, that's like telephone poles. I didn't know what the hell he was talking about. I said, what do you mean? He said, telephone poles. I used to install telephone poles. He said, you put them in the ground, they're 30 or 40 feet high, and they start to shake and move, and they can fall on the man and break his back. He said, so the first day I was on the job, I saw that pole, and I said to my partner, if that pole falls, I'm running like hell that way. And his partner, who was an old-timer, you know, he said, oh, you don't want to do that. He said, if that pole starts to fall, you want to go right up to it. You want to put your hands right on it. He said, it's the only safe place to be, yeah? We're always running away from our suffering, and it smacks us in the back of the head. And I think the only safe place we can ever be with it is to go right up to it, you know, put our hands gently, mercifully on it. That's where the healing begins. And so for me... That was about going toward, first going toward other people's suffering and then that helping me to really embrace my own. But, you know, I think a lot of people listening to this podcast are meditators or meditation curious, and they, they know enough to know that the whole game in meditation is 
We're not running away from our difficult emotions. We're we're investigating them with some non-judgmental, maybe even some 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 warmth. Um, but that doesn't mean we want to go sit and change diapers of dying people. Um, but that that to me seems like an extra leap that you made. I mean, a great one, but not an obvious one necessarily. But you've done some of this work. You know what it's like to be at the bedside. Yeah, it's a really honest place to be. Yes, it is. You know, and um, you know when you when you grow up around a lot of well, let's call it fake life. Yeah, it's really refreshing actually to be with people who are honest and genuine. I mean, when folks who are dying, what matters most gets really clear, really fast. You know, people ask me this all the time. Well, what does matter? You know, what are people's great regrets? I don't care about people's great regrets. I'm not so interested in that. I'm interested in the transformations that happen for them. And the two questions that come up for people that I'm with are basically, am I loved? And did I love well? And everything else is extra, you know? So to have those kinds of conversations, to be with people in those kinds of, in that direct way, in that intimate way, that's what drew me to being with folks who are dying. Yeah. Can you just, you, so you founded a center in, in San Francisco. Can you tell us about that place? Yeah, we started a program called the Zen Hospice Project. It was the first Buddhist hospice in America, and it started out of the San Francisco Zen, uh, Zen Center, which was founded by Suzuki Roshi. And uh, we didn't have much of a plan, honestly. We just thought there was a natural match between people who were cultivating what we might call the listening mind in meditation or the listening heart and people who needed to be heard, folks who were dying. And we started working with mostly with people who were living on the streets or in SRO hotels, folks that nobody else was looking after or very few people were looking after. And um, we just began. It was a kind of fusion of spiritual insight and practical social action, you know. And we started by working with people on the streets, and then we created a hospice residence, and then we created a 40-bed palliative care unit in the nation's largest long-term care facility in San Francisco. And I guided that for almost 20 years and got to sit bedside with maybe a few thousand people, you know. And they were remarkable, Dan. People like you and me, regular folks, you know, who found some way of meeting what they thought was unbearable or unimaginable, and yet finding some way to go toward it. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes, emerge as something larger than the separate self they'd taken themselves to be. Well, how does that, how does that happen, what you're describing? Can you, can you get a yeah. little bit more concrete? So the, there was a guy, I went to, he was referred to our hospice. He was in the psychiatric unit at San Francisco General. And he was um, there because he tried to take his life. And he tried to take his life because he had terminal lung cancer and he couldn't imagine any future with any dignity. So I went to see him. And he was in this stark psychiatric unit. And I went in and I sat down beside him. He was turned toward this green institutional wall. And I just sat for a while. And after some time, he, he turned to me and he said, Who are you? Nobody's ever sat this long with me in silence in this room before. And I told him who I was, and I was from the Zen Hospice. And I said, what do you want? And he said, spaghetti. <laughs> and I said, well, we make really great spaghetti. Why don't you come live with us? And he said, okay. And that was the end of the admissions interview. <laughs> so this guy comes to our residence the next day, and we have you know, a big bowl of spaghetti waiting for him because you understand spaghetti meant home and nurturance and familiarity. Right? 
Now, he didn't stop wanting to kill himself just because we gave him spaghetti. I mean, it was good spaghetti, but it wasn't that good. Right? <laughs> so this was many years ago before the assisted um, uh, physician-assisted death laws were in place. So he still wanted to investigate taking his life. Sometimes we have to go to the darkest places to find what heals. So we got this book. It talked about how to take your life if you had terminal illness. And I read him a chapter every night, you know, because I was really convinced that um, the willingness to go toward this experience that you've helped us understand a moment ago um, is where the healing is always found. Anyway, he didn't take his life. And a few days before he died, he said, Frank, I want to thank you. I'm happier now than I've ever been. Wow. And I said, come on. A few days ago, you wanted to kill yourself because you couldn't walk in the park and write in your diaries. I said, what was that all about? And then he said to me, well, that was just chasing desire. And I said, what do you mean? You mean those activities aren't important to you anymore? And he said, no, no, it's not the activities that bring me joy. It's the attention to the activities. He said, now my pleasure comes from the coolness of the breeze and the softness of the sheets. I thought this was a remarkable turnaround for a guy I met at a psychiatric unit. We lived on the streets of San Francisco before that. He had no Buddhist training, and we never taught him to meditate. But we created an atmosphere that was mindful, that was compassionate, that allowed whatever needed to happen to happen. Yeah. So, yeah, we, we, we brought mindfulness, we brought uh, Buddhist practice into, that, into the activity of care and giving care, but we never wore it on our shirt sleeves. You know, The people we took care of they lived on the streets. They didn't care beans about Buddhism or meditation, yeah. But they were highly motivated to be free of suffering, yeah. And that's what gets most of us to sit down on a meditation cushion in the first place, right? It's interesting. The approach you took with him was not one that I think much of us would reflexively have taken, which would have been to do everything to make him feel better and to talk him out of trying to take his own life. Uh, Why? I mean, that's just I think the the. the, the what we would do habitually. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's because we have a lot of fear of suffering. And so we want it to go away, you know. A lot of, um, a lot of what happens in healthcare today, you know, people nat- are naturally empathetic and we naturally reach out to each other out of concern and care and wanting to relieve people's suffering. That's beautiful. But there's another motivation that, that arises for us and it's um, personal self-interest or an effort to try and avoid our own discomfort. And then we start doing things to other people to relieve our own personal distress. Yeah. So I think we have to really watch that line there where we start trying to make something happen for another person so that we won't be so upset. I mean, an example is early on in the hospice, a woman was dying and she was a little depressed, a little blue, and it seemed natural she was dying. And the nurse came to visit and said, you know, I think we should start some antidepressants. And I said, that's curious. I said, why do you think that? You know, these antidepressants take six weeks to get, you know, a benefit. And she said, well, the woman's so uncomfortable and it's so hard to watch her be so uncomfortable. And very tongue in cheek, I said, well, maybe you should take the antidepressants. You know? So I think there has to be room in our hearts and our lives for suffering. We have to recognize even that there's a value to it. And I don't mean some kind of martyrdom but that suffering helps us, actually. It helps us feel compassion for other people. It helps us appreciate this life of ours, you know? It helps us to recognize our common ground with one another, yeah? 
So imagine if you're sick and everybody around you has no room for your sickness, has no room for your pain. That's a hard environment to be in. Yeah, but I do want them to give me pain relief. Yeah, me too. I want the best of pain relief. And, you know, we used we had morphine by the 55-gallon drum there, you know. I, I, I'm being facetious, but I, what I mean to say is, yes, we need to manage people's pain, address their symptoms adequately. But that's not all that's happening in the dying process. It's not just about physical pain or even mental anguish. What happens in dying is too profound for any one model. So I think we need to bring the best of what medicine has to offer. But dying is not solely a medical event. It's more an it's more a issue of relationships. My relationship with myself, with those I love, with my caregivers, with God or whatever image of ultimate kindness I hold. And so our work sometimes in being with folks who are dying is to address those relationships. And for me, that relationship is best addressed with some degree of mastery. You know, I want my pain controlled, but mastery is not enough, right? So then we need somebody who's comfortable with me in the territory of meaning to help me figure out what the purpose and value of this life has been. But even that fades away after a while. And then we need somebody who's comfortable in the territory of mystery, you know, the, the, the land of unanswerable questions, you know, um, where sometimes the best we can do is stay in the room. Yeah? I think all of that is facilitated by mindfulness. Do you think most people in our culture get a death that's infused with meaning and mystery, or do they just get a medicalized death? I think we've so over-professionalized and made dying a technological experience that we deal with it like we're just making the best of a bad situation. you know. And so, yes, I think people are dying with a great deal of fear and distress, but I also think there's something we can do about that. I think when we only see dying as making the best of a bad situation, we, we devalue dying. We, we rob it of its holy significance. Yeah? And um, we underestimate the kind of transitions that are possible. I mean, the folks that I work with that we've been talking about here Sometimes they make remarkable turnarounds in the final months of life or days of life or sometimes minutes of life. And we might say, too late. And I would agree. It's too late to do that in the last few minutes of your life. But here's the thing. If that possibility exists then, well, it exists now. And we don't have to wait until the time of our dying to make that kind of transformation in our lives. Okay, so say more about that. How would that, what's the mechanism by which that would work? Well, let's look at it. You know, let's see what happens if we turn toward the experience of constant change, let's just take that really simply, right? We rely on impermanence, don't we? Um, I mean, that cold you have is going to eventually going to go away. That really boring dinner party you're going to go to tonight will come to an end, you know? Uh, presidential terms end, you know? Um, we rely on impermanence. I was just in Japan uh, for cherry blossom season, you know? Beautiful, delicate flowers covering the hillsides. There's this cabin where I teach in Idaho, and outside the cabin, there are these little tiny blue flax flowers that last for a single day. So tell me, why are those cherry blossoms, those blue flax flowers, so much more beautiful than plastic flowers? I mean, isn't it that their brevity invites us into their beauty, into gratitude? I think it's true with our lives, too. I think the fact that this life is precarious helps us to appreciate how precious it is. And then we don't want to waste a moment. Then we want to jump into our life and use it in a responsible way. You know, we want to tell the people we love that we love them, you know. And 
and we don't want to miss this life. You know, how, how do we operationalize that advice and 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 make it? Because it's inspiring to sit with you and hear you say that, and mm. we've had previous guests on the show who have said similar things. Yeah. And I, you know, I say this as somebody who, as you mentioned, I do volunteer in a hospice. I'll be going there later today with my son and my wife. Um, and yet I often find myself walking out of the hospice, checking my phone and getting back into the stream of sure. stuff I got to do. And the power of forgetting is overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, look, I like to swim in the ocean. I like it a lot. You know, I sometimes swim for three or four hours way out into the ocean, you know. But I respect the ocean. I know it can sweep me away in a moment. And habits are like that. I respect habit. They can sweep me away. As you say, you're in this incredibly you know, insightful moment, sitting bedside with someone, and then you go out and check your smartphone, right? I think that we have to cultivate that habit of paying attention. And I don't think it's morbid to reflect on dying. In fact, I think it's very life-affirming. So here's a simple way to operationalize it. I was teaching, I was at a dinner for folks from Silicon Valley recently. And I said... Oh, wait, by the way, the Silicon Valley folks are trying to engineer it so that we don't Exactly, know. exactly. No, these guys, I'm at dinner and these guys say, I say to these guys, death is inevitable. And immediately this guy's hand goes up and he says, well, you know, we're working on that. <laughs> and I said, great, you know, please let me know when you get it, not, you know, knocked. But I said, let's take the word death out of the sentence. Let's just talk about endings. How do you meet endings? You know, the ending of a sentence, the ending of a relationship the ending of a meal, the ending of the day. How do you meet endings? Yeah. You know, or when an event finishes, you know, are you the first one out the door? Or maybe you were thinking about getting out the door before the event was over, you know, or maybe you're the last one in the parking lot waving goodbye to everybody. I don't have a moral judgment about how you should meet endings. I just want us to be conscious of our habits around endings. Yeah. The way we meet an ending shapes the way the next thing begins. Yeah. So that's a way to operationalize it, you know. You know, my wife and I, when we go to sleep at night, we, we, we often ask each other three or four questions before we go to sleep. One of the questions we ask is, you know, what inspired you today? You know, that helps us to know the leading edge of our life. But the next question we ask is, what challenged you today? Because we don't grow in our comfort zones, right? And then we ask the third one, which is, what surprised you today? That's a good one, you know. Surprise shows us where we're exercising too much control, you know? Like, you know, my granddaughter and I love to play peekaboo. I can do peekaboo with her 10,000 times, and she's surprised every single time. But, you know, you throw an adult a surprise party, and they say something like, who's responsible for this, you know? And then the fourth question is, um, what did you learn about love today? Yeah. So that, those are really simple reflections that we do to close our day but also to set up the next day. Yeah. So I think we can just go through our life, you know, haphazardly, or we can go through it consciously. We can cultivate habits which incline us toward paying attention. Stay tuned. More of our conversation is on the way after this. 
Is it still a struggle to get that good night's sleep? Then maybe it's time to try the Purple Mattress. It's made out of a new material that makes it firm and soft, so it keeps everything supported while still feeling really comfortable. Try it now with a 100-night risk-free trial along with free shipping and returns. And if you order one, you'll get a free Purple Pillow with the purchase of a mattress. Just text HAPPIER to 474747. The only way to get this free pillow is to text HAPPIER to 474747. Message and data rates may apply. This seems like a good point to start talking a little bit about your book. It's called The Five Invitations, and it really, as I understand it, distills five things that you've learned from, as you said before, sitting bedside with thousands of people as they they make this transition. Can we walk through the – would you be game to walk through the invitations? All right, so what's number one? Well, you know, first of all, these are – principles, we'll say they were guides that we used to take care of folks who were dying. And then we found out, well, boy, they, they're not only useful in attending to people who are dying, but for the rest of us and living a life of integrity. So the first one is don't wait. Don't wait. Waiting is full of expectation. Waiting for the next moment to arrive, we miss this one. I can't tell you how many times I was with family members who said, you know, when is mom going to die? And waiting for that moment, we miss all the moments in between. Yeah. So don't wait is a kind of um, encouragement to live very present right here and now in the immediacy of this moment, you know, and to really step fully into it. You know? um, Don't wait. So um, could it also apply to things like, you know, I know I've, I've got a, a, for lack of a less cheesy word, a dream, a career ambition or Uh, a romantic ambition or whatever, things that I think. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Oh yeah, my this is really what I want to do. Would would you know, would you argue for those people who have something like that cooking sitting around and pining uh, is probably not the best move, but maybe, you know, making you know, acting on these impulses would be I, I think it's useful to think about our taking 
you know, having some agency in our life. Um, but I don't, I think it's most superficial to just think, how do we satisfy our bucket list? You know, that's one way to think about this. Let's do all the things that we want to do. But, you know, those of us with the most toys don't necessarily, aren't necessarily the happiest. So don't wait is more like, don't wait to tell someone you love that you love them. Mm. You know, um, you know, I, I had a guy on my board and his, um, his mom was dying. He was in San Francisco. She was in Toronto. And uh, he said, you know, the doc says she has six weeks to live. When should I go? And I said, well, I don't know. Let's talk about it. And he came over and we visited. And he told me what the docs had said to him. And, as he, and then I asked him about his mom. And as he spoke about his mother, I could watch his face really closely. You know, and I saw his, the color in his cheeks change. And I saw a little trembling in his chin, you know. And I said, you know, I think you should go tonight. And he said, I can't. I have business tomorrow. I said, no, go tonight. Take the red eye. And so he did. He flew to Toronto, arrived at 10 in the morning at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. He was there when his mother died. Mm. Don't wait, you know. To imagine that we, at the time of our dying, we will have the physical strength, the emotional stability, the mental clarity to do the work of a lifetime is a ridiculous gamble. Don't wait for that. So if I'm hearing you correctly, it's like you're saying... The mental state of waiting, which is inherently not where you are, you're just uh, anti- you're in a state of anticipation, wanting. That is what you're exactly arguing against. Yeah. So a, a better word might be constancy, continuous contact with our experience. That's what mindfulness practice is mm-hmm. all about, isn't it? So even patience is a kind of a wrong word in a in a way because it's still we're. We're waiting still, but a little bit more calmly. Well, that's pretty good, you know, but constancy might be a better way to think about it. Right, right. The waiting that you're talking about is more akin to sort of a sleepwalking. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's living life um, tossed into the future, into uh, living life in expectation. Yeah. What's invitation number two? Welcome everything. Push away nothing. Uh, easier said than done. Yeah, make a great bumper sticker, right? <laughs> Welcome everything. Push away nothing. I mean, does it make any sense, you know? I don't think it means that we have to like everything that comes. I just think we have to be willing to meet it. You know, and I think what it does is it it challenges our whole notion. It puts our notion of judgment temporarily aside to be willing to open to our experience and see what it has to show us. It's at our front door. What does it have to teach us? There was a guy uh, that I knew. He was uh, the head of the California Athe- um, Psychiatric Association, and he developed Alzheimer's. And so he had a hard time remembering things in people's faces. And some friends went to his house for dinner and they, they rang the bell and he opened the door and he stared at them for a while and he said, I'm sorry, I, I just don't remember faces very well and I, and I can't recall your names. But I know this is my house. And I know that my house has always been a place where people were welcome. So if you're standing on my front stoop, I know my job is to invite you in. Please come in. Yeah. Here it is. Let's meet it. You know, James Baldwin, a great African-American writer, said, you know, there are lots of things in this world that we must face that we cannot change. But nothing can be changed until we're willing to face it. So that's what I mean by welcome everything, push away nothing. Do you ever find yourself pushing away stuff? Sure. That's why I have to remind myself with this, <laughs> with this invitation, this, this kind of principle. So we don't need to be perfect at this. Even the guy who's telling us to oh, do this is God. not perfect at it. You know, I, well... 
The third invitation is bring your whole self to the experience. Now, how do you do that? And what is your whole self? Is it your perfected idea of you? I don't think wholeness is perfection. I think it means no part left out. So what's that one? The third one, bring your whole self to the experience. I think, you know, when we think about helping other people, for example, we imagine it's our strength or our expertise or our knowledge that will help. And they do help. Those are fantastic, right? But you know, you've sat at the bedside with people. You know that sometimes the meeting place with other people is not your expertise. It's your fear or it's your helplessness. You know, that's what enables you, your understanding of those things enables you to build an empathetic bridge to that other person. You know, if, you, if, you, if someone says to you, I'm afraid, and you don't know what it's like to be afraid, you haven't really examined it in your life, you don't, you don't know what happens in your mind or your body, if you say, I understand, they will know you're just guessing, and they'll sniff out your sentimentality and your insincerity, and you won't be a reliable refuge for them. So to bring your whole self means bring the whole package, everything, and understand that all of it has some value. I mean, for me, the parts of my life that I was most embarrassed about, that I was most ashamed of, the most undesirable parts of me, were oftentimes the very thing that allowed me to create a meeting place, a relationship with the people that I worked with. How is that? You know, I want to push away a whole lot of my experience too. I know what it's like to have anger and rage. I know what it's like to have hatred. No? Um, so those things became, <laughs> well, here's an example. There was a guy in our hospice, and he was dying, and he was really grumpy. You know, people have this idea that when people are dying, they're kind and wise and, and open, and that's not true. Well, sometimes. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes they are. Yeah. Right, but sometimes they're just human beings, right? And they they following their whatever their personality habits are. So whenever anybody would go in this guy's room, he'd yell at them. And so they came to me and they said, you got to go talk to this guy, this guy, Larry, you know, he's just yelling at everybody. So I said, not me. I'm scared of him. I'm going to stay down here, you know, but eventually, because I was the boss, I had to go do it. So I walk across the threshold to Larry's room and he screams at me. I can't breathe in this damn place. Too many do-gooders around here. So I realized I was afraid. So I learned a really great intervention a few years ago about being afraid. Sit down, you know, sit down. You're less likely to run away if you sit down, right? It's harder to run away when you get your butt in the chair. So sitting there in the chair, Larry's screaming at me. And uh, I realize, boy, my breath is really tight. So I relax my breathing a little bit. And I said, hey, Larry, take a breath. Breathe, breathe in, breathe in deep. So he does. And I notice as he breathes in deep, he's not screaming so much. We're making progress. So I said, don't forget to exhale. So he did that. And then, you know, we're breathing in and out a little bit, and I feel my feet on the ground. I'm always checking myself in order to know how to work with somebody else. Feeling my feet on the ground, I thought, that feels pretty good. I feel more stable now. And I reached under the blankets and began to hold his feet. And as I did that, I felt a kind of fondness for him. And I said to him, Larry, you know, so many people around here really like you. You know, people really love you, Larry. And he said, who? And I took a risk, and I said, your mother. Because, you know, that's the archetypical love we're all looking for in a certain way. And he said, I hope so. And I said, yeah, me too. And we're into a whole nother conversation now, you know. All it took was the willingness for me to not run away from my fear, to go toward the experience that was happening in me, and use that as a bridge to working with him. 
Yeah, I mean, it is. It, it's basically taking the meditative technique of being aware of yeah. what's happening in your mind and your body and putting it into a situation that is pretty close to an emergency. Yeah. You know, I'm a kind of spiritual pragmatist, Dan. If it doesn't work for me in everyday life, I'm not interested in it, you know? I'm interested in in um, how can I be a full human being, you know? How can I be as free as possible, and how can I be of real some service to other people? And I think, you know, when you do this work for a while or you do mindfulness practice for a while, you begin to see your common ground with each other, you know? There was another guy, he... His name was Bo. He was from New Orleans. And he was a tough cookie, you know. First night he was in the hospice, he, he, um, his roommate was having an argument with his daughter. And Bo got in there and started hollering and yelling at him, you know. And I came into the scene and I said, Bo, you got to let him go. You know, that's not your business. That's their family. And he, um, he says, well, I know how to take care of him. And he pulls up his pant legs and he's got a bayonet in his boot. And I said, Bo, you you got to give me the bayonet, you know. I said, um, I promise I'll give it back to you. Now, this is a guy who lived on the streets, right? And that's a big act of trust for him to give me his bayonet. But he did. Bo used to sleep with his boots on every night in his bed. He slept with his boots on. One day he got up and he fell through this kind of surgery screen. And that roommate, I came running into the room to see what happened, and that roommate was holding Bo in his lap, the other patient saying to him, why won't you let us help you? Why won't you let us help you? And then for the next three days, the only one that he would let help him was the other patient, yeah? Because this guy understood something about him. We became really close friends, Bo and I. And shortly before he was dying, he got very paranoid. He got really scared. You know, we talk about this symbolic language of people wanting to go home, you know? Well, Bo just wanted to get out of his skin. He wanted to climb out of his skin and he talked a newbie volunteer into taking him out of the hospice into the coffee, the cafe on the corner. And when he got to the cafe, he called 911 and claimed that the, hospice, and the people in the hospice were trying to kill him. And so the paramedics came. And in that situation, what has to happen is the paramedics have to take him to the hospital, to the psych unit. You know? So I arrive on the scene. Bo's in the ambulance. He's screaming and yelling. The paramedics are ready to take him away. And I said, just give me a few minutes with him, Okay. They were hesitant, but they agreed. And I went into the ambulance, and I sat with Bo, and, I, and he was screaming at me. He's like, he's the one trying to kill me. He's the guy, you know? This is the stuff I encounter all the time, Dan. He's screaming at the top of his lungs, you know? And I had to find my breath and body. And I also had to find my affection for him and my compassion for him. And as he's screaming at me, I just looked him right in the eye and I talked to his soul and I said, you know, Bo, you know I love you and I would never hurt you. And he keeps screaming and I'd say, Bo, you know that I love you and I would never hurt you. And he keeps screaming. I say it one more time, Bo, you know, you know I love you and I would never hurt you. And he said, I know, Frank, that's why I trust you. He just popped out of the delusion for a moment and then he went back to screaming again. But the paramedics saw it. And the paramedics say, this guy's got to stay with you. And I said, yeah. So we gave him a sedative and we brought him upstairs and he died peacefully a day later. Yeah. That paranoia around, and then this sort of uh, twitchiness, restlessness, 
I've seen that at least in one case at the hospice where it was this woman, she was a former ballet teacher, and she just couldn't get comfortable. She kept trying to get out of the bed, kept having me move the, you know, move from one side of the bed to the next or just the way she was, the, the position of the bed over and over, hours and hours and hours. And I, I, as I understand it, that's actually a not uncommon thing that happens when people are dying. There's this kind of anxiety that sets in. And she was on high doses of sedatives. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the the, the healthcare folks would call it terminal anxiety. That's what they called it, yeah. yes. Which is just kind of an umbrella term to say, I don't know what's going on here, you know. My body is, you know, changing really fast. My sense of self is really um, being altered right now. I don't know what to do with this. You know, I'm facing something I've never faced before in my life. I'm unprepared for this in a way. Yeah, and you know, sometimes the right thing to do there is to medicate um, the person, give them some reduction to their anxiety. But, you know, I'm always interested in making the least intrusive intervention first. I'm totally willing to make all the interventions that are necessary, including what they call terminal sedation, which is to sedate somebody so they're not um, uh, acting out the kind of anxiety you're describing. But, you know, there was this woman that came to us, and she came on um, high levels of Ativan, anti-anxiety drug. And I said, well, let's just see what happens if we put someone at her bedside. She would wake up in the middle of the night with all these nightmares. And so the first night I was there with her, about 3 in the morning, she wakes up, she starts screaming, and I reach through the bed rails of the hospital bed, and I hold her hand, and I say, it's okay. You're, you're just in between worlds. You know, that's what's going on. You're just in between worlds. You're coming out of a dream, you know. And I said, here, you can feel my hand? And we just made that physical contact with her. And it didn't work the first night, you know. <laughs> but after about seven nights of doing it, um, we didn't need the Ativan anymore. Now, we had the resources to provide that kind of human companionship. One of the challenges in our culture is that we chemically restrain people sometimes um, when it's not needed. There were times when it's really appropriate to make that kind of intervention. Uh, but let's try something as simple as simple human kindness first and see how we can uh, see if that can have a positive effect. After years of doing this work, or, uh, what, do you, what would you say, what's your attitude about your own death? Are you afraid of it? Yeah. I don't like pain. I don't want to have pain. I'm a little suspicious of people who say they have no fear of their dying, you know? You know, my experience, Dan, and you probably saw this in your own meditation practice, is, you know, this sense of self, my personality, you know, it's always afraid. There's a body of fear that we sit in here. And I recognize that that's not going to grow up. It's always going to be afraid in a way. So I have to find something that's bigger than that. Like when you're afraid, let me ask you, do you know you're afraid? Yeah. How do you know? I don't know. It's a good question. Can you sense it in your body? Yeah, oh, yeah, for sure. Okay, so what happens? Your chest gets tight? Yes, chest gets tight. I have a bunch of um, self-oriented or, well, if it's something happening to my kid his or my wife or whatever, a bunch of anxious thoughts. Right. Yeah, the body's tight. Right, so the body's tight, the mind's strategizing maybe, or it's into survival mode in some way, right? Beautiful. So you know that really well, it seems like. The part of you that knows you're afraid not afraid. <laughs> right. And and it's not just Buddhist rhetoric, you know, it's not just mindfulness, you know, 
language, you can orient to that awareness. You can orient to that part of you that knows you're afraid, and you can function from that, or you can function from the fear. You've got a choice. Our default is to keep functioning from the fear. That's our habit. But when we cultivate the capacity to respond from someplace else, then we can really, you know, we can have fear. It doesn't go away, but it doesn't take up all the space in the room. Yeah. And that's, a, that's the real beauty of contemplative practices is they give us that capacity. And for me, it's really practical and it's highly operational, you know. Um, so I think, yeah, I might be afraid when I'm dying, but I don't think it will be all of me. So we, when we talked about the fear, you said you didn't like pain, but what about fear around, you know, what's going to happen next? I think people have, and I probably will succumb to these two, people have three big fears. The first is that it's going to hurt. So we can do something about that. We can manage people's pains really well in about 95% of the cases. That's great. Second fear is that I'm going to be emotionally abandoned because there's no future in a relationship with me. Well, we can address that too. We can be a compassionate companion to someone. We can say, I'm here. I'm not going to leave. You know. The third fear is a little more difficult. Third fear is, all the ways I've defined myself, all my identities, you know, you're a journalist, a news anchor, I'm a Buddhist teacher. All of these identities and these roles that we've played in our life, they're all either stripped away by illness or they're gracefully given up. And then we come down to something more fundamental. We have to ask the question, now who am I? Yeah. Now that's a much more difficult fear to deal with. You know, that's the, it's not just existential, you know, it's real. One of my mentors was Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. You know, five she, stages. Of five freedom. stages, right. The final one was acceptance, if you remember, right? And people have kind of bastardized these you know, five stages over the years. I don't think Elizabeth meant them in quite that same way. But my experience in working with folks is that acceptance is not a final stage. Acceptance is just the beginning. You know, if your marriage breaks up, you might accept it, but you're not happy about it. My experience is after acceptance comes something different, and it's more like chaos the whole sense of self, the ways I've defined myself, all that starts breaking down. Yeah. And it's frightening for many people, and it's chaotic, and it gives rise to the kind of restlessness you were talking about earlier. And then out of that comes something infinitely deeper than acceptance, and I think it's surrender. And I'm not even sure we can choose surrender anymore. It's not my experience that it's more like it chooses me. And it feels more like an undertow or like something giving myself over, ceasing of any kind of battle or fight against this experience. And out of that comes a much more deeper possibility, which is, we could say, transformation. The possibility of knowing ourselves to be more than what we've previously taken ourselves to be. So the transformation is, it's not like we turn into a butterfly. It's more <laughs> like we we stop being so identified, tightly identified with our small self and a little bit more right. uh, part of a larger system. Actually, it reminds me of a guy who I met in the hospice who said something to me that he was not, he didn't, I don't think, had any real spiritual background or anything like that. He, Although he was a professor, so he's very mm -hmm. smart, but he said, uh, I was talking to him about fear and, you know, are you scared going into this? And he said, you know, I just have started to think of myself as part of a larger system. Yeah. Yeah, something people ha often have this experience where they feel themselves to be part of something larger than themselves that also includes themselves. Right. 
You know, that's the easiest way to talk about it. And it doesn't have to be religious. It's not religious for people. Um, it could be as simple as nature. Yeah, oftentimes. It's, it's you know, the, people's spiritual lives, if you will, or their inner lives is maybe a better way to say it, often much more about their relationships, you know, or their time in nature than they are about some philosophical belief, you know, or something that they learned in church or in synagogue when they were seven years old. There was a guy who we worked with. He, he was a... Um, heroin addict for 30 years, African-American guy, name was Jackie. And, you know, at the hospice, I always ask people, what do you think is going to happen after you die? Because I think whatever story we have about what happens after we die, and I don't know what happens, but my experience is that it shapes the way in which we die, Mm. our ideas about it. So uh, I said, Jackie, here you are at this Zen hospice. I said, you think you're going to get born again? And he said, yep. (laughs) I said, uh, well, what are you going to come back as? He said, Jackie. <laughs> I said, well, you want to be Jackie. You've already been Jackie. Why don't you, you know, you could be a king or a queen or a news anchor. And uh, he said, uh, nope, coming back as Jackie. I said, how come? He said, because next time I'm going to get it right. <laughs> and you see, we were in a whole, into a whole other conversation now. We were exploring something really different. Mm. So I don't know what happens after we die. And I... You know, if when I die, I find out, I'll write and tell you, you know, but, <laughs> but um, I do know that it shapes the way in which people meet the experience. There was a woman I worked with. She was a Christian scientist, you know, and she was 92, 93 years old. And uh, she said to me, I just want to put my head in the lap of Jesus. I mean, she was really ready to die. She was comfortable. She was satisfied with her life. She had deep faith. And then her granddaughter came to visit. And her granddaughter said, Grandma, I read a book. And in that book, it said, when you die, everybody who's died before you will be there to meet you. And Grandma became terrified. Because the story that was true for her that she'd never told anyone, and she finally told me, was that her husband, Edgar, had been beating her most of her life, and he died five years before. And the idea of spending eternity with him was terrifying to her. So I don't impose my ideas on other people. I'm not interested in that. It doesn't matter what I think about it. What matters is what do they think about it and how is it shaping the way in which they're meeting their experience. Fourth invitation. Find a place of rest in the middle of things. You know, we're always thinking we'll do rest later, you know, like when our list gets checked off or we go on vacation or we go on a retreat of some kind. But I don't know about you, but my list is never checked off. If I wait for that to rest, I'm in trouble. So I have to find a way of resting right in the middle of what I'm doing. And that's the heart of mindfulness practice, isn't it? Really learning to rest into your experience, just as it is. Clear mind, rest in that. Confused mind, rest in that. There was this gal, she was, uh, her name was Adele, and she was this ferocious 86-year-old Russian Jewish lady, you know. And uh, the night she was dying, they called me up and I went into her room. She was sitting on the edge of the bed or in her dressing gown, feet dangling off the bed. And I went in and sat in the corner because that's my way. I, before we jump in to help, look and see, is anything really needed? You know. And sitting on the bed was a home health aide with her, a very nice woman. And Adele was this tough cookie, you know. And, um, and the home health aide said to her, Adele, you know, you don't have to be frightened. Uh, we're right here with you. And Adele turned to her and she said, honey, if this was happening to you, you'd be frightened. 
So I stayed in the corner, you know. <laughs> and then uh, a little while later, this very well-meaning attendant said to her, you look a little cold, you know. Would you, would you like a shawl or a blanket around your shoulders? And Adele shot back, of course, I'm cold. I'm almost dead. And I thought, wow, I wish I had half the tenacity of this woman, you know. And if I die, I, you know, when I die, rather, I hope I have some of that kind of energy. But I noticed a couple of things sitting there. One is that um, there was struggle. There's always a struggle or often a struggle in dying. And in this case, it was manifesting in the breath. Every in-breath a struggle, every out-breath a struggle. This despite the fact that we'd made all the correct interventions, right? Oxygen and morphine. But there's a labor to dying, just like there's a labor to getting born, you know? And the second thing was that she didn't want any nonsense. She didn't want to talk about tunnels of light or bardos or... She just wanted honest human relationship, yeah, something reliable. So I pulled my chair up really close to her like you and I are sitting here, and I said, Adele, would you like to struggle a little less? And she said, yes. And I said, okay, I noticed something. Right there, you know, at the end of the exhale, before the next inhale, there's that little gap. I said, wonder what it would be like if you could put your attention there for just a few minutes. I'll do it with you. Now, this is an 86-year-old Russian Jewish lady. She doesn't care beans about Buddhism or meditation or any of these things. But she's highly motivated in this moment to be free of suffering. So I said, come on, I'll do it with you. I didn't guide her. I just breathed with her. She would breathe in. I would breathe in. She would breathe out. I would breathe out. And I noticed that over some time, her attention got drawn into that gap. You know, that's an amazing place, that gap at the end of the exhale. You know, it's, it's a moment of either fear or faith. You know, do you have confidence the next breath is going to come or do you start micromanaging it in some way. Well, she relaxed, and I saw the fear in her face just drain away. You know, She never meditated before in her life, Dan. But after a while, she said, Frank, I think I'm just going to rest now. And I said, okay. And she laid back on her pillow, and sometime later she died. I think she found a place of rest in the middle of things. Mm. You see, all the conditions were the same. She was still dying. There was still struggle with the breath, all those things, all the conditions of our life that we're always trying to manage, they were still there. But she found a new way to be in the midst of all those conditions, right? She found a place to rest in the middle of things. I mean, do we have to die before we rest in peace, you know? That's a good question. <laughs> I hope not. So how do we find if the way, I mean, because, I mean, as you said, the checklist is never done. I think if we just depend upon the conditions, we're in trouble. Uh, you know, I think we have to find a way of resting in the middle of whatever it is we're doing. You know, you do it all the time, I'm sure, in your work. You have to bring your attention fully and completely to whatever it is you're doing. And when you do that, at least in my experience, that's a lot more restful. Mm-hmm. You know, my mind isn't split. You know, this notion of, you know, multitasking is just that, a ridiculous notion. That's um, not actually happening. We're just doing a lot of things, paying very little attention. So bringing my attention fully and completely to whatever it is I'm doing. Um, and it doesn't matter if I'm reading a book, being with my granddaughter, or sitting at the bedside of someone who's dying. Um, that becomes a state of ease and restfulness. Invitation five. Invitation five is cultivate, don't know mind. Now, I felt obliged since I was founder of the Zen Hospice to put something Zen-like in this list. And, you know, Zen's full of these paradoxical statements, right? Cultivate, don't know mind. What does that mean? I mean, it's not encouragement to be ignorant. I mean, don't know isn't ignorance. Ignorance is, I know something, but it's the wrong thing, and I insist on it. You know, there's a lot of that going on in the world right now. 
so to cultivate dona mind is to cultivate a mind that's open, that's receptive, that's curious, that's full of wonder, yeah? to, that's willing to explore. It isn't so fixed by our knowing. There's room for something else to emerge. I, I had a heart attack a few years ago. I was teaching a retreat for doctors and nurses on compassion, and in the middle of it, I had a heart attack. And it was humbling. I used to think I knew a lot about dying, you know, until I had a heart attack, and then I realized I didn't know so much, and that was actually a really good thing. The view from the other side of the sheets is really different. The night before my surgery, I was talking to my son. You know, he came to visit me. He was about 29 at the time. And, um, you know, great guy. I love him dearly. And he, he brought some videos to watch. He, one of the videos was a bucket list. I said, no, let's not watch that one tonight, you know. But uh, we're having this ordinary conversation like you and I are having. And in the middle of it, he said, Dad, are you going to live through this? And I love my son, and I wanted to reassure him immediately. And so I started to say, don't worry about it. It's going to be fine. But out of my mouth, I heard myself say, I'm not taking sides. <laughs> and I wasn't taking sides between life and death. And I wasn't trying to be sage or Buddhist or any of those things, Dan. It totally surprised me. But it came out of my mouth, and the both of us were shocked by it. But then we both relaxed because it was true. And when the truth's in the room, we can relax. I wasn't taking sides with life and death. To cultivate don't know mind is to cultivate curiosity. When I came out of that surgery, I was in the recovery room. I was still intubated. And um, a friend of mine was there. He was a meditation teacher. And my son. And um, into the room comes a respiratory therapist and says, let's pull out that tube and see if you can breathe. That's what he said to me. And I... And I waved my arms, you know, in fear, like I wasn't ready to have this happen, and it scared me. And my friend, the meditation teacher, he said, uh, Frank, find your breath. Well, I couldn't find my breath. The machine was breathing for me, and I couldn't tell what was the machine and what was me. So I shook my head no, and he said, well, then sense your body. Well, I tried to sense my body, but it was so full of narcotics from the anesthesia that I really couldn't sense very much of my body. And then, right then, Dan, your teachers are really important to you. And I remembered Suzuki Roshi, the great Suzuki Roshi, you know, this extraordinary Japanese man who in 10 years changed the whole way we think about meditation. And when Suzuki Roshi was dying, the night before he died, um, he wanted to take a bath and get clean. And his wife said no, but he insisted. And so his son, Otohira, carried him carried his father into the bath and lowered him into the bathtub. And as he lowered the great Suzuki Roshi into the bathtub, Suzuki Roshi got scared. He was really scared he was going to drown. And his son said to him, Father, calm yourself. Find your breath. I'll do it with you. And Suzuki Roshi was able to stabilize. In this moment, when I'm in the, you know, in this frightened condition, I remembered this. And I took my friend and I pulled him close to me, my meditation teacher friend, and I put my ear right next to his mouth and I borrowed his breath, the rhythm of his breath, until I could find my own, until it could stabilize me. And then I could signal to the guy to take out the, the tube and see if I could breathe. Let me, um, in our closing moments here, try two questions that may not work. Um <laughs> 
Will we have two more in case those don't? No. No, that's it. <laughs> uh, uh, one is I was asked by Men's Health. Uh-huh. I've been writing a column for Men's Health. Oh, yeah. Great. Um, and they want they have an issue coming up, maybe out by the time this posts, I don't know, about being fit at any age. Uh-huh. And they asked me to write something about aging gracefully. Hmm. I feel utterly unqualified to write. Um, but does that term, aging gracefully, resonate with you in light of everything we've just discussed? <laughs> yeah. Basically, I'm asking you to write my column for me. Yeah. Um, you know, I think I can imagine a couple of things about this. One is that, you know, one of the ideas we have about aging in this country is that we should continue to be youthful in our aging, you know, um, that that's what aging gracefully looks like. Um, I think, you know, one of the things that we're lear- beginning to understand about aging is that um, to be a true elder is not just about getting older, right? And to be a true elder these days, I don't think it's just about one directional mentoring, you know, the wise old sage mentoring the young person. I think it's about uh, mutual benefit. I think it's about that kind of exchange. That's my experience anyway when I'm working with younger people. So I'm always learning from them and I hope they're learning something from me. So that's the first thing that eldering has not to do with, isn't just about getting older. But also Ramdas, a friend of mine, you know of. Great, great meditation great teacher. Great teacher, remarkable guy. You know, He wrote a book some years ago called um, Still Here <laughs> after his Be Here Now books. And it was about just that, aging. And uh, I was at his house one day, we were having breakfast, and he said, so what did you think of that book, Frank? And I said, you want the truth? And he said, yeah. I said, well, it was okay. He said, yeah, me too. He said, I wrote it in my 70s. What did I know about aging in my 70s? <laughs> he said, now I'm 86. I understand something about aging. Yeah. So I think that sometimes we um, maybe prematurely try and be wise around, our, around this stuff. Um, I think to grow gracefully is to mature into the fullness of our life yeah? and into the fullness of our acceptance. And that might include disability. It might include confusion. It might include um, uh, the losses that come with aging too, not just our own physical or mental losses, but the losses of those that are dear to us. I think when we can embrace all of that, then I think uh, we are aging gracefully. Yeah. I, 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 like, I like all that, especially the last one. Um, but what you're not talking about, as, I, as far as I understand it, is some sort of resignation around, look, this, this body's impermanent, so I'm not going to take care of it. No, that's nonsense. You know, this body's important, and it's my vehicle for knowing the world. It's my sensing tools to know the world. I want to take as good a care of it as I possibly can because it's what allows me to interact with the world, to know the world, to be you know, fully engaged in my relationships. Um, I think that's a misunderstanding of... Uh, I think Buddhism has had a misunderstanding of that, that we shouldn't care for the body. The body is extremely important. And um, I love my body. You know, after my heart attacks, it was hard. I mean, it was humbling to have a heart attack. I was depressed. I was dependent on others. Um, I was weak. But as I paid attention to that, Dan, what started to happen was, that stripping away became a kind of transparency. 
and I began to feel myself totally differently than I'd known myself to be before. Something I was familiar with, but it became more intimate with. And after that, um, after that experience, I thought, I love this heart of mine. I wouldn't trade it for any other one, you know. There was a famous Tibetan teacher that called me after my heart attacks, and I, he'd had a heart problem. And so I, I said, um, how'd you deal with that? You know, the pain, the depression, all of it. I thought maybe he'd give me some esoteric practice, you know. <laughs> there was a hesitation on the other end of the phone. Then he said, well, I think it's good to have a heart. And he said, if you have a heart, um, you should expect that we'll have problems. And then he told me to rest, and he hung up the phone. You know? <laughs> that was it, no esoteric practice. When I got off the phone with him, I thought, you know, he's right. You know, If we have a heart, if we have a human body, we should expect that we'll have problems. I mean, who told us otherwise? You know. So it's not resignation. It's a willingness to include um, the, the truth of our aging, the truth of our impermanence. But um, it isn't morbid, and it's not about uh, giving up or just resigning ourselves. I think I want to live this life as fully as I can every minute I have, right up to and including my dying process. I don't want to sleep through my dying. I want to be awake for it if if possible. Final question. You said if I heard you correctly, back when I said, how do we operationalize the sort of, the, it's often said that uh, we can live more fully if we do it in the light of death. Mm. And I said, well, how do you, uh, it's easy to forget that when you're, you know, folding laundry or, you know, dealing with a ten- tantruming toddler or whatever it is we do. Mm. I'm referencing two things that I did yesterday. So <laughs> um, you, one of the pieces of advice you said was investigate how you are around endings. Yeah. And the thing that came to mind for me is a discussion that my wife and I have been having recently about eating. Because you said, how are you at the end of meals? Yeah. And uh, we both have noticed that we have this habit. We do a little bit of like irrational, probably emotional eating, both of us. Sure. We're both slim. We both exercise quite a bit. But it's just sometimes we find ourselves eating. We're not hungry. And we've, then afterwards, we kind of hate ourselves. We don't hate each other, but we hate ourselves mm-hmm. as a consequence of the eating or whatever. Anyway, we're kind of puzzling over this. No, no resolution has been reached. And um, I just wonder whether there's something around for both of us, or at least for me maybe, about not accepting the ending of the meal and that I, for some reason, want to keep eating even though I've, I'm really done eating. My body is sated. Yeah, well, this be, I, could be a question that doesn't work. I'm just right. Well, I, I, you know, I, I'm not going to psychoanalyze you around that one, but I, you know, I think you can sort of see, you know, at what point were you satiated? You know, when was it? What's enough? That's always a really good question. What's enough? You know, David White, the great poet, he's got a good poem. He says, "Enough, enough. These words are enough. If not these words, this sitting here, this breath, this opening to life again and again, which I have refused again and again until now." until now. So I think, yeah, what's enough? That's a good question to ask in our lives. What's enough? <laughs> Is this one life enough? I, um, for me, the practice of gratefulness is a really great way of understanding what's enough. To really practice um, expressing my gratitude, feeling my gratitude, appreciating this life, and everything I've gotten it. I mean, all the people we know that are dear to us, 
are going to die someday. Now, that can either depress the hell out of us, or it can inspire us to really take care of them and to love them with every bit, as hard as we can, you know, our whole beings. You know, that vase on the shelf that your mother gave you, it's going to fall off the shelf one day. You can be sure of it, yeah? The question is, how will you take care of it now? How will you appreciate it now? Knowing that all things will come to an end, how do we care for this life? That's a pretty good place to end this. Um, Before we really say goodbye, can you um, give us, again, the name of the book, uh, where we uh, uh, where we can find out about you on the internet? Um, anything you want people to know if they want to investigate you more fully? Great. Well, the, the book is called "The Five Invitations: Discovering What Death Can Teach Us About Living Fully." So it's not just about death; it's about how to step fully into our lives. People can find me at um, fiveinvitations.com, and there they can see a series of my events and where I'm teaching and that kind of thing. I also run an organization called now called the Meta Institute. Meta is an old poly word, means loving kindness. And it's uh, all about training clinicians and caregivers about how to do mindful and compassionate care of people who are dying, how to be a compassionate companion to them. So they can find me there at the metainstitute.org as well. Um, but I want to thank you actually for the willingness to have this conversation. And, um, you know, the whole world is running in the other direction, Dan, away from this subject. And for one reason or another, you chose to come toward it. And I really want to thank you for doing that and thank you for the volunteer work that you do. Um, I think the world, I think when we are at the bedside of someone, when we're on the precipice of death, we learn things um, that the world needs. I don't think our job is just to be caregivers. I think it's also to carry that wisdom that we learn there into the world. Um, so I want to thank you for having a conversation. And I want to thank you right back. Okay. Great job. Thanks. Thanks. I really I want to amplify that point Frank was making at the end there that there is an incredible amount to learn sitting at the bedside with people who are dying. You know, we live our lives I think I think understandably on some levels just totally caught up most of us. I'll just speak for myself. I live my life mostly caught up in my to-do list, my anxieties, whatever. And you can lose perspective that this thing is temporary. And you get a big dose of that by sitting at the bedside, which is why I try to do it on the regular. And I also agree that there's some, it's incumbent upon those of us who do this work to to talk about it, hopefully in a way that won't come off as preachy, but will in fact just be useful. So I'm, I'm at the moment endeavoring to write about it. And as I work on my next book, which is taking up all of my time and bandwidth. So thank you to Frank for that. That, that, was a, that was a great interview. As mentioned at the top of the show, we're now moving the voicemail section here to the, to the bottom of the show. And at, also, as mentioned, we're going to start bringing in some ringers to answer the questions. For now, though, you're stuck with me. So here's voicemail number one. Hey, Dan, thank you so much for having this podcast. It's definitely a highlight of my week, and it's really helped me a lot with my meditation. I just had a quick question. I am very interested in a lot of different kinds of meditation. So, for example, loving kindness or or focused awareness meditation. And I know that each of the different kinds of meditation also has different benefits. So I was just curious how you kind of uh, structure your own meditation practice so that you're able to incorporate all of these different kinds of meditation into your own practice. Um, That would be great because I would love to be able to um, have more of a focus 
and know how I can really get the benefits of them all without being a bit too scattered. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Totally reasonable question. I've struggled with this for a while. I'm not going to claim that I know for sure I've got it right, but I'll just give you my system. So right now I've kind of committed as I'm working on a book about kindness. I got to find a better word because it's just the word sounds a little sappy, but whatever. I'm working on a book about kindness. And so I'm doing a lot of loving kindness meditation. That's an even worse word, loving kindness um, right now. That's my primary practice. That being said, it's not all I do, depending on a number of variables, but my overall goal is to get that practice in. If, however, I'm overtaken by a lot of physical discomfort or something like that, and it's hard to do that kind of practice, I switch to a more open awareness so that I can just be with whatever's happening and not worry about, you know, trying to get my love on. Um so for you, if you're interested, I, I'm guessing that you're like most of us, your primary practice is just watching your breath or doing sort of basic um, mindfulness. One way to attack this would be to have your primary sit of the day be that and then try to add maybe a secondary sit right before bed where you're doing metta, M-E-T-T-A, or loving kindness meditation. So that's one idea. Another is, depending on how long your primary sit of the day is, to do a round of metta at the beginning, which is something that I've done at various times. And the, another, uh, another idea entirely would be maybe to do an every other day type of thing. So I've done all of those things with you know reasonably good results along the way. I, I would say one other thing. I don't know. This isn't – no gold stars are handed out here to my – knowledge. So I don't know that you need to be feeling guilty about not doing every kind of meditation. I think you should. I think there's some benefit in focusing on one kind of practice for a while, the way I'm trying to do with loving kindness. I think a better term is friendliness. Let's just call it friendliness meditation. So uh, I don't think you're somehow a failing meditator if you're just doing one thing all the time. But if you're really interested in finding you're getting a lot of benefits from, from both flavors or a number of flavors, then I think an orderly system makes sense because then you're not going to have doubt arising in the mind about like, wait, what should I be doing now? Did I not do enough of that other thing? I think an orderly system, in my experience, is what has made sense. Great question. Good on you for being so um, ambitious. Just don't take it too far. Here's number two. Hey Dan, I'm ringing from Melbourne, Australia. A couple of things. Um, one, are you uh, going to come down here sometime? Be great to see you talk. And number two, I've been meditating for uh, a number of years, and I believe I'm okay at it. Um, but I'm wondering about whether I can gauge it crossing over into my waking hours and non-meditating hours, and how to gauge that. I'm just not sure whether it's having the having actual benefit because I believe I still slip into being a a victim of the ego outside of meditating. Uh, I hope that question isn't too simple. Uh, keep up the great work, and uh, I'll keep on listening. Thanks, bye. I suspect there was some sort of, like, something in the range of nar- uh, narcissism, nepotism that that motivated the selection of that voicemail. One of our new producers, <laughs> uh, Samuel, is Australian, so he may have, there may have been some favoritism there. Anyway, I really like both of your questions. I would love to go to Australia. There have been a time, I've been there before. It's a, it's a wonderful place. I have had a, 
at least one invitation to come. It didn't work out for a variety of reasons. But, yeah, I'd certainly be open to that. It's a long trip, and finding time in my schedule might be a little tricky. But, uh, yeah, going to Australia does not sound like it would suck. The second question, more substantive, uh, you still feel like you're a victim of the ego. Well, I mean, welcome to the human condition as far as I know, unless you're enlightened uh, the ego is still going to be around and often overtake you and make you do dumb stuff. I, I understand the, the 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 doubt you're feeling, and I mean, like the only way to to really resolve that doubt would be to stop meditating for a while and see what happens. I, I don't recommend that, but you might, I think, get some confirmatory data. My sense is uh, that yes, you are still overtaken by or, as you say, victimized by your ego regularly, but that it's not as bad as it used to be. In my own case, that is absolutely the case. How do I know that? Not only from my own lived experience, noticing like, oh, wow, this whatever stimuli are are in front of me right now, I'll sometimes think, oh, wow, this would have sent me over the edge before. Now I'm annoyed, but I'm not acting on it. So that's one way I know it, just through my own lived experience. The other way I know it is that my wife will often point out that I'm vastly less annoying than I used to be um, and easier to live with. And so that's actually a really good uh, measure, the people around you. That's probably a much more reliable measure. But I I don't want to set up, and I think it's really important to understand, there's a reason why I somewhat jokingly entitled that first book, 10% Happier. This Perfection is not on offer here. You're... The voice in your head, your ego, the monkey mind is still going to hijack you regularly. It's not about never experiencing anger, irritation, fear, jealousy, whatever, all of these difficult emotions. It is about what my friend Sam Harris, host of the excellent, uh, well, formerly known as Waking Up podcast. Now I believe it's called Making Sense podcast. Uh, Excellent, no matter what the name is. My friend Sam Harris has talked about cutting down on the half-life of anger and the fact that the amount of damage you can do in an hour of anger as opposed to two minutes of anger, well, that's incalculable. And so I you know, reasonably regularly experience two minutes of anger, but it's pretty rare that it stretches into an hour and I have many, many, many more things to apologize for later. So, yeah, I mean, it sounds to me like things are going well. In some way, there's this weird paradox where – it's been described that that once you start meditating, um, it things hurt more, but you suffer less. In other words, you may the pain of your ego arising or some difficult emotion may it may hurt more because you're more self aware, but you're suffering less because you're less likely to act on it and create suffering for yourself and others. So that's my strong suspicion about what's going on with you. Um, and then you know. Bottom line, when people ask me, how do I know whether this meditation thing is working? My somewhat glib, but I I mean it, answer is, are you less of an, uh, well, it's a word I can't say on this podcast because we're owned by Disney, but are you less of a word that starts with an A and ends with an E uh, than you used to be to yourself and others? So are you less of that to yourself and others? That is the metric I use in my own meditation practice because as the brilliant Sharon Salzberg has said, we're not meditating to become better meditators. We're meditating to become better at life. Great question. Really appreciate it. And um, hope you guys are okay with this new structural change of moving the voicemails to the end. I 
I think based on the comments we got in, in our in our um, survey that this will go over well. That does it for another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. Uh, if you like us, please take a minute to subscribe or to rate us or to share us uh, this podcast with a friend. I know that may sound sort of perfunctory. You hear podcast hosts saying this kind of thing all the time, but there's a reason because ratings and subscriptions and social shares really help us and help us grow the audience and get more highly ranked on iTunes, on, on the Apple Podcast uh, app. And uh, yeah, that just helps us grow. Uh, also, if you want to suggest topics uh, that you think we should cover or guests that we should bring in, you can hit me up on Twitter at Dan B. Harris. I don't really read Facebook, but I do mostly read Twitter. Um, and before I go, I really do want to thank the people who now produce this podcast. We've got a new team here. Uh, Samuel Johns and Ryan Kessler. Uh, also want to thank the rest of the folks here at ABC News who helped make this thing possible. Uh, we have tons of other podcasts at ABC. You can check them out on abcnewspodcast.com. Thanks again for listening this week. Really appreciate it. I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fu, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.